0: Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to be here. Uh, I'm excited uh, and, and fairly nervous about uh, being up here in front of all y'all. The lights are a little lower back in, uh, back in the theater where I normally speak there. So um, you know, I'm, I'm excited to be here. I want to start with a question. Do you ever forget things? Maybe your keys, your lunch, for our students, your locker combo, email passwords, birthdays, anniversaries? Never, okay, well, if you're like me, and hopefully there are some of you out there who are like me, then you forget things quite a bit. You know, For me, the things that I seem to forget the most is what it is I'm doing in the midst of doing them. I will be uh, on my way to complete some task, and before I get there, I will have forgotten what it is that I set out to do. And so then I've gotta spend time figuring out what that thing is, is what what was it? Why do I have these things in my hand? What was I supposed to do? And then I'll remember sometime later. But you know, what's even more frustrating about the things that I forget are the things that I actually manage to remember. And hopefully, this is true for some of you so that I'm not alone in this, but for me, I tend to remember things that are inconsequential, things that I should just forget, things that should stop taking up place in my brain. And while the things that I actually forget are the things that I should remember, for instance, there is a repository in my brain that holds the following useless trivia. For example, There are 52 bones in your feet, which means that of the 206 bones in your entire body, roughly a quarter of them are in your shoes at any given time. The guy who created the Pringles can was so impressed with that creation that when he died, he had his ashes buried in it. In 1999, the NSA decided to ban Furbies from their offices because they were afraid that the Furbies would overhear state secrets and then repeat them. Which was a possibility, because that was one of the functionalities of a Furby. It could learn things, and it could repeat things. It could pick up language. But the question really should be, why did they have Furbies in their office to begin with? (laughs) You know, some of those facts have been kicking around in my brain for a long time. They've been taking up space in there for decades, and that's fine. I'm okay with that. It just makes me more interesting at parties. The problem is that there's no such repository for the number of things that I should remember but can't seem to sometimes those things are funny like this past Monday I had, I had to do, uh, I had to reheat dinner when I got home just reheat it see Kara had spent plenty of time Sunday night lovingly preparing this wonderful chili she'd stayed up late made sure that everything was perfect all I had to do were these three simple steps put the chili on the stove turn the stove on low don't let it burn Somewhere between steps two or three, the wheels came off the wagon, and my first clue that something had gone wrong, my first clue that I had forgotten something was when, from the other side of the house, I began to smell smoke. I made my way to the kitchen pretty quickly, uh, and as I get there, I see not just uh, a little bit of smoke, not just a little wisp of something, but smoke billowing out from under the lid on this pot. I had ruined the chili that Kara had worked so hard on, and you know, she says things like, "You had one job." in my defense sweetheart, it was three. But I think deep down, as frustrated as she was, she must find it endearing or cute because you know, we've been married for 10 years, and by this time she has to realize that that's part of my charm. <laughs> sometimes, though, the things that I forget have a far deeper impact. It's worse than just a pot of ruined chili. You know, sometimes the things that I forget have the potential to affect and do affect huge portions of my life. They have the, the potential to affect everything in my life. In the last half of last year, in the last half of 2016, the business that Kara and I had started, the business that we believed that God had called us to failed. And we watched it crumble. We watched it disintegrate around us. And during that time, I felt like God had forgotten me. You know, it was scary. It was overwhelming. It marred everything else. I graduated from seminary in December, and even that was tainted by this because at that point in my life, it felt like just something else coming to an end, just further evidence that the momentum was gone out of my life. And one of the things that I spent the most time struggling with during all of that was that because I'm a bivocational pastor here, because I work here part-time and I worked at my other job part-time, losing that business, I thought meant that I would lose this as well. You know, what scared me the most was that what I thought God had called me to, if one of those things didn't work, if it didn't, if it didn't hold together, that maybe all of it would fall apart and I would have to leave this place, that I'd lose my business. That I would lose this place, and that I would finish seminary with no place to go and do ministry. It it was overwhelming, to say the least. And at one point, uh, in the midst of all that, I found myself sitting in the parking lot of a Target, crying my eyes out in my truck, which is a weird thing to do, guys—real weird. Um, yeah, I—I I hopefully there weren't any of you that walked by. If there were, I apologize. And you know, it just was one of those things. It was just so overwhelming. I couldn't see anything except for the circumstances that were around me. And those circumstances were not good. And what made this time so difficult was that it seemed like God wasn't coming through, like God had forgotten me. But ultimately, looking back, the thing that I've realized isn't that God forgotten me, uh, that God had forgotten me, it's that I had forgotten about him. I was the one who had done the forgetting. You know, we all have those things that we forget individually and even corporately, even as a nation, we have these things that we've forgotten. This is Memorial Day weekend. It's an important weekend in our nation. But I think we've lost a little bit of what that is all about. You know, in 1996, there was a group of children touring the nation's capital and they were asked, what's Memorial Day about? The response that they got out of that group of children, the thing that they realized most about Memorial Day was that it was the weekend the pool opened. Now if you're from a place that actually has seasons, then maybe Memorial Day has that meaning to you as well. Maybe it is the unofficial beginning of summer that doesn't work here because in Florida, it's been hot here, it has been summer here since sometime late last fall, and so Memorial Day is another day in a string of warm days. Yeah, the true purpose of Memorial Day is like OJ said, is to remember those who died fighting for our country. For most of us though, Memorial Day, while it may carry that meaning, the thing that we think of most is the fact that we're getting a break. Memorial Day isn't much different than its summertime compatriot, Labor Day. You know, if you're into fashion, maybe you see those as the bookends of the seasons when it's okay to dress all in white, if you, uh, if you are so inclined. Also, for the fellas, it is the perfect season to try out one of this year's hottest fashion trend: rompers for men. If you are unfamiliar with what a romper. Uh, is it's, it's, a, it's a shirt, like if you were to take a t-shirt and a pair of shorts and sew them together and then put elastic around the waist so that it made things, you know, made the dad bod stand out real nice. Um, <laughs> you know, that's, that's this season's hottest fashion and if, if you were so inclined, now would be the time for you to wear one of those all in white. Starting tomorrow, I don't wanna see it today, but starting tomorrow, you could wear one of those all in white. And when you picture that on a dude, it is a unique look. And there's nothing wrong with celebrating your freedom with a barbecue tomorrow, by going to the beach tomorrow, by going to the pool tomorrow, or by breaking out your interesting new men's activewear. There's nothing wrong with that. But we shouldn't allow that to be the only thing that we think about. We shouldn't allow that comfort to, have, to cause us to completely lose sight of what Memorial Day is about. And I think when we lose that meaning, it actually reflects a deeper issue. It reflects the fickle and fleeting nature of our memories, both individually and as a nation. So why is it so important that we remember the past? In the case of Memorial Day, the real important reason to remember the past is that we should honor what those who have made those sacrifices have done. I think that's incredibly important. I'm so glad that we took a moment to do that today. I think Memorial Day is also a reminder to us of the cost of that sacrifice and a reminder before we do what it is that we have to do or before we go too far down a path of counting the cost. And in that respect, I think Memorial Day is a reminder of the universal truth that those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. If we were to state that another way, I think it's this. I think our future depends on our ability to remember our past. And in fact, our history, well-remembered, empowers and emboldens our future. And I'm not talking about the the pie-in-the-sky dream that we have of what the future could or maybe should or might possibly look like someday. I'm talking about the real, messy, day-to-day, living, breathing future of your actual life. This truth is reflected in Scripture in many places. And today, if you brought your Bibles, you can open with me to Joshua chapter 4. If you have a bulletin, you can follow along with that as well. Joshua chapter four, starting in verse one. When the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, choose 12 men from among the people, one from each tribe, and tell them to take up 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan, from right where the priests are standing, and carry them over with you, and put them down at the place where you stay tonight. So Joshua called together the 12 men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and he said to them, Go over before the ark of the Lord, of your God, into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of tribes of the Israelites, to serve as a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. So the Israelites had been a part of a miracle. They'd walked from one side of the Jordan to the other while the river was at flood stage, out of the desert, into the promised land on dry ground. It's a miracle. God tells Joshua to have the 12 stones, one for each tribe, carried from the riverbed and set up at the place they camped that night. Clearly what God had done was supposed to be remembered. And these stones weren't just a reminder for the people that did this. They weren't just a reminder of the people there, for the people there. Joshua appreciates the long-term significance of this moment and tells the Israelites, in the future when your children ask, you tell them the story of what God did on our behalf. In fact, if you were to read the rest of chapter 4 out of Joshua there, you would find that not only was this memorial supposed to remind the Israelites of this actual river crossing, it was also supposed to point back to the time 40 years hence when God had opened the the Red Sea for them to deliver them from the hands of the Egyptians. And these stones were to be a memorial of God's faithfulness forever. And in various places throughout the Old Testament, we see people setting up altars or stones much like this to mark places that God had moved on their behalf. Much like facing a river or a sea that needed to be crossed in 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, Samuel and those with him were facing an obstacle that they could not overcome on their own. And in that moment, the Lord intervenes and he delivers his people there on the plain outside Mizpah and afterwards we're told that Samuel took a stone he set it up between Mizpah and Shen and he called the name of it Ebenezer saying hitherto the Lord hath helped us the name that Samuel gives to that stone Ebenezer means stone of help which makes sense because he turns to the Israelites and reminds them that hitherto the Lord hath helped us now I know the language there is a bit arcane and antiquated it comes from the King James but the sentiment is the same no matter what the sentiment is God has been with us all along you know, that stone between Shen and Mizpah, the 12 stones at Gilgal and other such places throughout Israel's history, bear witness to God's faithfulness. In those moments when God made his presence known to his people, they in turn did something to attempt to make sure that those moments would be remembered. Why? Because we tend to remember what we should forget and forget what we should remember. C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says, We need to be reminded more than instructed. Now, I know this is the beginning of summer break for a lot of our students. That is not an excuse to stop learning new things. It is instead an acknowledgement of how important it is to remember what we already know. And it's also an acknowledgement of how quick we are to lose sight of those Ebenezer moments when God has moved on our behalf. If you think through the Old Testament, if you think about it, the Old Testament, in a sense, is the story of God's chosen people, the Israelites, frequently forgetting whose they are. Whether that's in their complaints about the food in the desert after God had parted the Red Sea to uh, provide for their escape from the Egyptians, or how quick they were to build a golden calf to worship while Moses was up on Mount Sinai. Or that moment, decades prior to the one that we just read about in Joshua, when the Israelites refused to enter Canaan, because they were afraid of the people there, despite all the things that God had done on their behalf up to that point. The moments that they should have remembered had faded into the mists of the past. And looking at it from the outside, it's easy to look at it and think that they have some sort of spiritual amnesia. But if we're honest, we're not much different. So what do we do about it? How do we ensure that we will remember what God has done in our behalf? How do we make sure that we hold tight to the moments that we should remember? Those Ebenezer moments that remind us of God's faithfulness. I think the most important thing that we can do is stop relying solely on our memory to do that for us. I think instead we need to create points of contact. We need to find our own Ebenezers, our own reminders of those powerful stories that we need to share with our friends and our families and our children because our future depends on our ability to remember our past and our history well-remembered empowers and emboldens our future and the future of those with whom we share our story. So what do we use to mark those moments? I think we can probably all agree that the tools that Joshua and Samuel used were not the most, uh, the most useful tools in our lives. Boulders are not that common where we are and they're also not exactly things that we can keep in front of us all the time. So, so what do we use? Yeah, they can be whatever you like. They could be pictures. They could be objects. They could be people. They could be a journal. And you can call them whatever you like, whether that's a spiritual memento, a reminder, a memorial. But whatever you call them in whatever form you use, the bottom line is this. You need external reference points in your life to remind you of where you've been and what God has done there. You know, it's important to note that while these reminders can be just about anything, they should be more than just a trinket. They should be something that has meaning to you. And perhaps more importantly, it's important to remember that they shouldn't be seen as talisman either. There is no power in these objects. Whatever it is, it can't provide for you when you're in need. It can't encourage you when you're being kicked around by life. It can't fight on your behalf, but it does point to the one who can do all of those things. You know, the power in these objects lies in their ability to remind you of God's faithfulness. And J. Hudson Taylor, who founded the China Inland Mission in 1865, believed so strongly in the importance of remembering these type of moments that within every place that he lived, he had this plaque put up on the wall that said, Ebenezer, Jehovah, Jireh. His translation of that was, The Lord has helped us up to this point, and he will see to it from now on. This wasn't just kitschy wall art for him. Because Taylor and the missionaries that he sent out lived their lives depending fully on God's provision because there was no guarantee of money coming in. The China Inland Mission guaranteed no income whatsoever for anyone in the field. They were fully reliant on God. I want to take a moment and acknowledge that if you are in a rough spot in life, if you are in the midst of a deeply painful time right now, if you're struggling to find hope for the future when you look at your past, you don't see God's presence there. I hear that. I understand that. I don't know that I've been ready to hear this message eight months ago, but my hope is that you'll listen and you'll hear where I'm coming from. And I hope that when you're ready, you'll be able to see the places in your life that God's been at work, even when you didn't see it. I also want to acknowledge that to some of you keeping physical reminders, that idea may seem weird or hokey. Let me tell you, sorry. In fact, since you already likely know the story, I'd like to tell you the rest of the story. I'm gonna indulge my inner Paul Harvey a little bit this morning. Most likely the version of the David and Goliath story that you remember comes from a Bible much like this. What we do in here is we create palatable versions of stories that are, uh, that are easy for our kids to understand. I would have brought a flannel graph up here, but OJ has rules about the size of props that I can bring on stage, and so you'll just have to look at this and know that the story that I'm telling, uh, the story that I'm talking about you know, it's the type of David and Goliath story that comes out of here. Now, either for the sake of good manners or awkward questions, all of these stories about David and Goliath, they end this way. David fires the stone out of his sling, it hits Goliath in the head, Goliath hits the ground dead, and the Philistines run away. That's the end of the story as far as that version of the story is concerned. The problem is with that version of the story, they leave off a few things. In fact... One of the things they leave off is that once Goliath had fallen on the ground, David didn't just walk away with his hands raised in the air. David went over, took Goliath's sword, and used it to cut Goliath's head off. He then carried Goliath's head back to Jerusalem. Admittedly, those are not very kid-friendly parts of the story. And so maybe it's best that those aren't in there. I would not want to have to explain all that to Kate. It would not be great uh, to have to do that with my kid. But there's this other thing that we leave out when that's all that we remember of the David and Goliath story. You see, when everything was said and done, David took Goliath's armor or his sword, depending on which translation you read it in, and he kept that in his own tent. Why would David keep this stuff that would be too big for him to use effectively, armor that was way too big for him, a sword that was way too heavy for him to wield effectively? David kept this stuff as a reminder of a moment when he had trusted God and God did something through him that seemed impossible. For David, these are physical reminders of God's faithfulness. And you know, the practice of remembrance doesn't end in the Old Testament. In fact, one of the most common things that the church has done throughout the centuries, sharing the communion meal, is an act of remembrance instituted by Jesus at the Last Supper. On the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and the wine and he blessed him. And he told his disciples and through his disciples, us Christians throughout all the ages, that we are to frequently share this memorial meal of his body broken and his blood spilled on our behalf in remembrance of him. And The importance of remembrance is seen in many other places as well. In recovery groups like Alcoholics Anonymous or here at Regroup, there's a tradition of handing out chips or medallions to mark how long a person has been sober from their drug or addiction or attachment of choice. And these chips, they aren't trophies to celebrate time spent in recovery. They're reminders to keep working the program. As I learned more about the chips, I read this profound comment that explained as in so many things, especially with we alcoholics, our history is our greatest asset. That commenter went on to say that each person in recovery has two histories. They have an intensive and lengthy history of things that don't work from before they began their journey to sobriety. And then, they have a, and then since that journey began, they have a new history of things that do work. For people in recovery, it seems clear that it's important for them to remember their past. Their future depends on their ability to remember that past because it's their history well-remembered that empowers and emboldens their future. As I read on, another comment stuck with me. Uh, this commenter said, we take the chip so that the newcomer can see that recovery is possible. And I couldn't help as I read that, but notice the fact that it's so similar to what Joshua said to, to the Israelites with him at Gilgal. Tell the story to your children. This small, physical reminder bears witness not just to the one who receives it, but also to those who witness it. It inspires hope, the courage to continue, and to trust the program. Three weeks from now we will be celebrating a regroup graduation here at Summit, and those who have faced the challenge of walking through their histories will be receiving one of those coins as a reminder of that. But not just of the work they have done, also as a testament to the one who works in them, and hopefully as an encouragement to others who need to know that recovery is possible. Look, we can't afford to forget what God has done. It's why Joshua had 12 stones set up at Gilgal. It's why Samuel took a stone and set it up and named it Ebenezer. It's why David put Goliath's armor in his tent. It's why Jesus instituted the communion meal. Samuel, Joshua, David, Jesus, they all knew that the future of God's people would depend on their ability to remember their past. And that their history, well remembered, would empower and embolden their future. That's the same reason why we need to surround ourselves with reminders of those places where God has come through for us. About three months ago in late February, I was standing in my kitchen one afternoon. I don't remember exactly what I was doing. I kind of have this foggy picture in my brain right now of where I was and stuff like that. But in that moment, I heard this Bible verse. Hitherto the Lord hath helped us. And as that came back into my memory, with it came the realization that that thing that seemed so scary, that seemed like it was going to take everything apart, hadn't done that. Now that doesn't mean that it was easy and that there aren't parts of that that don't still hurt and are still hard. But I was able to see finally, there at the end of February, I was able to see finally the ways that God had been faithful even when I couldn't see him at work before that. You know, God has faithfully provided for my family. One of the biggest ways that he's done that was to provide an awesome job for my wife. It's, it's great. They love her and she gets great benefits. That has been such a blessing to us. You know, he has made it possible for me to continue to follow the dream that he put in my heart in a place that I love with people that I love even more. I never expected that this story would be one that I would talk about here. But that moment in February was the origin of this sermon as God began preaching it to me. So during that struggle, what are the things that I should have remembered? I should have remembered the time 15 years ago when after I had made a complete mess out of my life after my freshman year of college. As I cried out to God walking across the front line of my parents' house, I just want to be your son again. God spoke to me saying, you always were. It's just that sometimes you forget. In the worst example of my unfaithfulness, God reminded me that he was always faithful. I should have remembered the reason why we gave our daughter, Kate, the middle name Faith. You know, we knew going in that it was going to be difficult to get pregnant and stay pregnant, and we had had a miscarriage. And so with that means the next time there are more tests and more things that have to be done. And so after getting a positive pregnancy test, we started that process with, with blood tests. And you've got to get those numbers to, to line up. And if they're moving the right direction, that's great. If they're not, then that's not. And I remember driving down I-4 one morning. I think it was a Saturday. We we're going to visit some family and just waiting for that call that was supposed to be coming in. And the answer that we got on the other end of that line was either going to be—it was either going to be an amazing, day or it was going to be a horrible day. Thankfully, we got the answer that we were looking for. And then a few weeks after that, I got to sit in this tiny little dark sonogram room uh, and see the first picture of our daughter, which looks something like a cross between a T-Rex and a lima bean. Um, but. <laughs> In that moment, it was amazing. Apparently, I also cry in sonogram rooms, in addition, not just in my car. Um, but it was such, a, such an amazing moment. And then months and months later, when I finally got to hold Kate in my arms, there was this, this revelation of God's faithfulness. See, it took some faith for us to continue to believe that this would be possible for us. It took more faithfulness from God to make that possible. I should have remembered how it felt when OJ asked me to come to work here. It was May of 2014 and we were over in the kitchen in base camp over there. that place is a special place to me because at 31 I assumed that I wouldn't actually get to do student ministry. that The thing that God had originally put in my heart, what he had originally called me to do in ministry, I assumed that I was too old, that I had missed that window. Because everybody that I knew that was doing student ministry was much younger than I was. Especially with just starting out. But that afternoon, uh, in a conversation that probably seemed like a regular conversation to OJ, and you know, the dream that I had had, this thing that God had put in my heart that I thought was dead, came back to life. It's an amazing feeling. To know that even when I gave up, God was still faithful. Another thing that I should have done is I should have picked up these. I should have actually opened them up and read the prayers that I had prayed. I should have seen the ways that God had come through so many times over the course of writing out prayers. These are just a few of the things that I should have remembered in the midst of my struggle. And I want to be clear that my story is far more descriptive than it is prescriptive and that God was going to deal with you in his own way. Your story will be different than mine and that's okay. In fact, it's good because God deals with each of us as individuals I've committed to keep these things before me. These are the stories that I will be continued to tell. These are the things that I'm going to tell Kate about. These are the things that I will tell my friends and my family about. These are the things that I'll share with folks who are struggling. The thing that I've realized over the past three months is that my future depends on my ability to remember my past, and it's my history well-remembered that empowers and emboldens my future. It gives me faith to believe that in times of turmoil God will be faithful. And it gives me faith that when God asks me to take a step that seems too far, that I can go ahead and make that leap. And I want to be so clear on this. This isn't just an exercise in remember when. To quote the modern Italian philosopher Tony Soprano, remember when is the lowest form of conversation. Because remember when is a trap. It's going to trap you into thinking that your gilded and romanticized memories of what happened way back when are the best that it'll ever be. Don't just remember the glory days. You know, be fired up by them. Be encouraged about your future. And I guarantee you that you have not faced your last storm, and in the midst of that, there will be times when, you're, uh, when you will struggle, where your resolve will be tested, but in those times... You'll need to remember the Ebenezer moments in your life. I'm equally as certain that there's something more that you have been called to, something new to which God has already or will in the future call you to do. I don't care who you are, God is not done with you. And your ability to answer that call is gonna be based in large part on how well you can remember your past and how well you can remember what God has done for you already. If we were at surge or edge right now, this is the point where I would pray and dismiss you all to connect groups to reread the scripture and to take some time to think through and to talk about the ideas that we've covered today. But since we're here, what I'm going to do is I'm going to leave you with these two questions. Number one, what are the stories that you need to tell your friends, your children, your family? What are the objects, the places, the people that reveal God's faithfulness in your life? Take some time today to remember the moments that God came through for you, the moments when you walked through something difficult and you couldn't see God, but when you got to the other side and looked back, it was clear that he was there all along. Think about where you are right now, the steps that it took to get there, the things that seemed too big, the things that seemed out of your reach that God helped you do. Tell those stories. Find the pictures, find the journal entries, find the physical reminders that reacquaint you with those moments. Take the time to tell those stories, not just for your own good, but for the good of people around you, because like we say here fairly often, your story told truthfully is good news to others. Hold each other to it. Embrace the memories of God's faithfulness and let them form the basis of your future, empowered and emboldened. Maybe for you, your most important Ebenezer will lie in front of you. Maybe for you, the most important Ebenezer that you will ever get is a chip like this that marks the difference between the past history and the future history. Can you imagine if your faith, if your life wasn't ruled by the capriciousness of the circumstances that you were in from day to day? Can you imagine how God might use us in setting this world to rights if we were people who were committed to remembering well those Ebenezer moments in our lives? and following hard after what God had in front of us. That sort of faith depends in no small part on how much you can trust God, and how much you can trust God depends on how well you can remember where he has helped you up to now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you that we live in a place where we have freedom to live and worship without fear because of the sacrifices of our fellow citizens. I pray that today as we go out from here, as we go out into our lives, that you'll bring to our remembrance the stories that we need to tell our children, our friends, our families. Give us opportunities to share them for our good as well as the good of those with whom we share them. Give us stability in our present circumstances and hope for our future as we remember how you've dealt with us in the past. Let us not forget that while hitherto the Lord hath helped us looks back Upon what has happened, it also orients us towards the future. Let the attitude of our hearts and the focus of our minds be those moments when you have helped us so that we will be empowered to face the hard times and emboldened to charge headlong into what you have called us to do. We thank you, God, for all that you have done in our lives and our hearts up to now. And We thank you, God, because you will not leave us. In Jesus' name, amen.